Well, good morning again, everyone. I'm glad to see you here this morning, and I hope that your December is starting off well as we come to the last month of the year. We're also coming into the second week of Advent in our season. We're going to discuss the justice of God a little bit this morning. Now, this is not a typical theme that we would find discussed during Advent. Normally, you stick to the the love, joy, peace, preparation, hope, things like that. But justice is still one of those immutable characteristics of God that shines brightly through this season. Last week, we talked about the voice in the wilderness and how the gospel message, the good news, finds Um, those who are are lost in the wilderness, finds sinners in the world and brings them hope in their times of despair. And we we discussed about the leveling of the mountains and the valleys and what all of that looks like. We talked about that theme and how it relates to John the Baptist. Um, And you know, as we talk about justice today, I'm also mindful of some of the messages that we've recently been discussing those about vengeance, those about getting even, ideas of fairness. You know, a lot of times our definitions of fairness and justice revolve around our own circumstances. So today we want to address this issue of justice and look to our own hearts and minds a little bit and those definitions. I mean, I know in my life, I think that the world would be a much better place if everyone just listened to what I had to say and if things went around the way that I wanted things to go. Not sure if you've had similar thoughts in your life. But you know, as I've also said recently in other messages, many times we continue to struggle with this issue of pride. Something that the enemy constantly uh, puts before us. Where we are wanting to control God and we're wanting to do things the way that we want to do. So today I just simply want us to be in awe of the justice of God and what that looks like, whether that's understanding it in a fresh way today or just a good reminder to understand that he is just and it is for our good, our benefit, not because we're believers, but because he is God. So today I want to take us to the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament you have your Bibles there, we're going to begin in the last verse of chapter 2 and read through the first six verses of chapter 3 today. It's beginning in verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and that he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. 
Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Father, as we go to your word today, I just pray that you would allow us to see the truth of your justice this morning, that we can take comfort in the fact that you are, that you are God and we are not. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. So in my typical fashion, just kind of doing some backstory, some context for us with the book of Malachi to give us an understanding of kind of what's immediately going on and and why this book is written. You know, there's not a lot of evidence to date this book. Uh, There's not a lot of big names that you can connect things to like emperors or rulers or high priests. Um, but what we have are some, is some language and the mention of how the Israelites are going to be worshiping in the temple. So it's believed that it's written after the time of the second temple being rebuilt. Uh, so that was built in 515 AD. There's a lot of similar themes that happen with Nehemiah's book. Um, so a lot of people try to date it to when he was a governor, which probably would have been between 445 and 420 B.C., Either way, what we want to understand is that this is a post-exile book, and the themes are interesting as you read through the book. There are problems with the priesthood, which has grown corrupt. Worship is routine in the minds of the people. Divorce is rampant. Social justice is being ignored, and tithing is being neglected. Now, all of this is happening 75 to 100 years after the temple is rebuilt. After the people come out of exile, judgment for rebelling against God. And we can see how this corruption is happening in such a short time, how they are falling away from God. We look to our own country at times. We look to the moral decline in the last 50 to 75 years and we think, man, it's going so fast. Well, perhaps nothing new is under the sun. What we see here is a call, or sorry, what we see here is their rebellion even after so quickly returning from exile. The call that Zechariah has, another post-exile prophet, to come back to the Lord Um, as the temple is being rebuilt. This prophecy from him is growing cold, and the people are going back to their corrupt ways. We find a lack uh, of justice and righteousness being upheld within the people of God. Malachi calls him out for this. He's rebuking the priesthood for their corruption. He's rebuking the the married couples for getting divorced. He's rebuking those for wearying God and demanding justice by their own definitions. You know, the people, they are weary, they're growing cold from the time of exile because they were expecting these blessings, these promises of God to be for them. And they were expecting them to come in the way that they wanted them to come. More on that in a minute. 
You know, as the saying goes, be careful what you wish for. You know, a lot of times this analogy is used for, you should be careful if you're praying for patience. Because then that means you're going to be tried with something that will test that patience. You know, be careful what you wish for. Because it might just come to you. I think the same mentality can be applied to our text today. Whereas people are crying out for justice and they're asking the question of where is God? Be careful what you ask for. Because his justice will come when you least expect it. No one escapes that judgment. You know, it's similar to when we're pointing our finger at someone else and we have three pointing back at ourselves for our own wrongdoings, our own hypocrisies. As a society, we've been so ingrained to get ours, to make things be fair, to make sure that we come up on top. And it plays right into that selfish conceit that we, that we struggle with, that pride that the enemy loves to have it as our constant battle. So as we're wanting everything for ourselves, as we're trying to get everything that we want, we think that we're gonna be happy, temporarily at least. It's the same type of mentality that's going on with the people during Malachi's time. So let's dive into this prophecy a little bit, breaking it down with this opening question and the response that's in verse 17 there of chapter two, where they're asking, how have we wearied God? You know, and Malachi says, it's with your words. You said that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and the Lord delights in them. Basically, you're saying God is justifying evil. He's calling evil good and good evil. You know, that which is to be an abomination to God, you're saying he's upholding, that he is celebrating. The people of God are judging God based on how they're viewing their own life, based on their own perceptions, their own perceived lack of blessings. And they're deducing that God must love evil, evil people because all of the surrounding nations, all of the Gentile nations, they have blessings, they have wealth, they have influence, they have power. But not God's own people. So God must love them more than he loves us. It was an indictment against God and how they tried to say that God was showing favoritism based on world's standards. The Israelites were not on top. They were not receiving the blessings that they thought were theirs, blessings that we talked about even on Isaiah 40 last week, the things that were gonna be coming down the road for them. Now, when we think about those two prophecies, there's probably a 250 to 300 year difference between Isaiah and Malachi. The people were getting impatient after 300 years. Where are you, God? Perhaps you can see some similarities to our own life and how we approach God in the same way. I would say the only difference would be that we're not waiting 300 years, but maybe 10 minutes, 10 days. Where are you, God? Why haven't you answered me yet? Where's my blessing? The Israelites would indeed learn, however, that God is just. And that his justice would come in the form of the Messiah, whose path would be prepared before them. You know, chapter 3 starts off very similar to what we read last week in Isaiah 40. In terms of the messenger and preparing the way. 
Preparing the way would include all of the leveling of the hills and the valleys and the processional type of talk that we talked about. And the leveling there that's in view, you know, especially of our understanding of what John the Baptist comes and does for the people. It would be about the repentance and faith in the Messiah to where their hearts are being prepared for his spiritual coming. But that faith right now with this people group, the faith that they had in the promises of God was weak. People were losing hope. But Malachi is telling them that help is gonna be coming. Now in that first verse, there are three distinct people that are being talked about. You have the father who is speaking the message, the messenger that is sent to prepare the way, that would be John the Baptist, and then the messenger of the covenant, who would be Jesus. You know, the people are seeking the Lord to show up, and God says that, you know, my messenger of the covenant, he's gonna show up at the temple suddenly. It's an imminence, which is similar to how we're waiting for the king as well. This type of imminence would push them for perseverance in their faith, to continue to trust in the promises of God. Now, when you look at the timeline, that's another 400 plus years before the Messiah comes. That means that the people would have to hold on to the hope and pass it down to the future generations, continuing to live out the teachings and promises of God. But again, the people are getting tired of waiting. Similar to last week, I want to look at this in layers. Because when we look at verse 2 and the message of who can really withstand the day of his coming, you know, I, I liken this to what we read last week in terms of how people are like grass and who can stand from the breath of God, the Spirit of God. In the same way, who can stand before the judgment of God for when he comes. You know, it kind of really puts into perspective how the people missed the purpose of the Messiah. You know, when Jesus comes onto the scene, what are they looking for in terms of the Messiah? They're looking for an earthly king. They're looking for freedom from the oppression of Rome. They're looking for somebody to give them earthly power and influence and justice for all the wrongs that have been done to them as a nation. They're looking for their own gain, for their own glory as the people of God. They're not expecting the Messiah to come and correct their interpretations, to challenge them with hard teachings, to cause them to want to stone him several times. No, that's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. The Messiah is supposed to be on our side. He's supposed to be fighting for us and what we want, right? Revenge, paying back all of these nations, Lord. How long must we wait? You know, I'm reminded of the book of Amos, and there's a phrase that is repeated about all of the nations in, that are talked about in Amos where it talks about, you know, for three transgressions of you, Edom, no, for four, I'm not going to hold back my punishment. And he goes through all of these nations, never mind Judah and Israel and talking about them as well. But what stands out to me is in Amos chapter 5, verse 18. He says, woe to you who desire for the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. You know, that middle sentence, why would you have the day of the Lord? Why would you think that the day of the Lord is good? Is what that phrase means. Because it is darkness, not light. 
You know, many in Malachi's day thought that the day of the Lord was going to be this magic cure-all scenario where they're going to be justified, where they're going to be vindicated, and it's going to be good for them. However, that's not to be what was going to be expected. That's not what was going to happen. Layers. Perhaps similar to our own understanding of when Jesus comes back. You know, if he were to come back today, does the thought cross your mind of, I told you so? Do we go through life yearning to be right? Do we go through life demanding our own forms of justice and for the Lord to make everything right in those moments? Because when Jesus comes for his church, what's actually going to happen? Getting into eschatology a little bit, that's always fun. I believe what's gonna happen is the Bema Seat of Christ, judging believers for the rewards. It's found in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And I think Paul expands on what this looks like in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, where he says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built upon the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You know, within this judgment time, I believe that there's going to be tears. I believe that there is going to be losses that will be suffered, even though we are still saved. But I think that those losses will be suffered because so many teachings of Jesus tell us to be prepared. But we are too busy worrying about others. Not for their lostness, not for spreading the gospel, but in terms of fairness and wanting more for ourselves. See, the beam of seat that is coming is an account of our life where we need to give God an account of what we did with the talents received, what we did with our faith, what we did with the gospel message. Are we so focused on the return of the Lord coming that where he's going to be king, that we're going to be proven right, that we're going to be having these new bodies that will be in heaven, that we're neglecting the work that is before us. It's not about us. It's about the glory of God. Where he has given us his spirit on earth for his glory, for his purposes. Don't miss that. Don't squander that. He is just. We are beneficiaries of that for sure, but it's not about my rightness. It's about his kingdom. Because again, we're dealing with eternal punishment and reward. 
We're dealing with the stakes of the lives around us that are lost. Now, of course, I'm assuming that all of us here are secure by faith in Jesus and what he has done to pay for our sins. And if we don't have that security, please talk to me after the service. Talk to one of the elders if you have confusions about that or if you have questions. But you know, as Malachi speaks this prophecy, he, he talks about how when Jesus comes, it's gonna be like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap, where he will cleanse the impurities of his people. And within this analogy, fire removes slag from the metal as you skim the dross off of the, to- off of the top. Soap removes the dirt from the body, from the clothes. So God is actively cleansing his people. I'm not sure if you've ever experienced molten metals, uh, silver, gold, maybe perhaps a better analogy might be bronze for this culture in terms of what they would use for mirrors. But you know, as you're, as you're doing this, as Jesus is skimming the dross, as he's taking the slag out of the metal, he would do so to the point that he would be able to see his own reflection in the metal. I think it's a, a beautiful picture of what sanctification is to look like as he is cleansing us from those impurities. The ultimate goal, of course, once we're glorified, would be that we would be reflecting Christ and not ourselves. That is the goal. Another connection within this, here he mentions how he's going to be doing this for the Levites. Now, the Levites were the priests. Of course, on this side of the cross, we are known as a priesthood of believers. And we look at the care and the concern that he has for his people. How he is going to sit and refine them. How he is going to be right there for them. With this, within this care and concern, it's done in order for them to, to bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Offerings of ourselves to do the work of the Lord. Proverbs 21, verse 3, says, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And then in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, In sacrifice and in offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written within my heart. You know, you think about how we are called to be servants. You think about the offerings that we make before the Lord, how it is to be our total selves, how we are to give up our lives for him. You see how that is done through that refining process. You see how he is going to come and he is going to judge the Levites for how they have been, how they have been uh, living their lives. But it's not just the Levites that are gonna be judged. He's gonna come and judge all of the wickedness and all of the evil among them. Let's look at verse five again. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. 
this swift judgment is the answer to the claim of God being unjust. And as the Israelites are desiring for the judgment to come now, God is patient. As it says in verse 6, he does not change. It is because God is God that you are not already consumed, O house of Jacob. This statement that he does not change refers to the essential character of God, where he is always holy, he is always loving, he is always merciful, he is always gracious. Now there can be other statements found in the Bible where he changes and it refers to him changing his course of action to a different course of action. That's not changing his character. These involve his choices. If he did not change his choices, he would be unresponsive. If he changes his character, he would be unreliable. But he does not change. Thus, the justice of God has not come in the way that the people desire, but rather in the way that God's will has set forth, in a way that will be good for them. Because I think of Second Peter, Chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. And this is why it's good for them. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, it's not God's desire for everyone to end up in hell to receive eternal separation from him. He is patient and he is giving people time to come to him to hear his good news. And as believers, as Israelites, we might want God's justice to come down right now. Well, I guess it's a good thing we're already saved. What if his judgment and his justice rained down before we were saved? It really shows the pitiable state that we are in, if not for the grace of God. God is just, and his justice was coming in the form of a savior who would righteously live and do the will of God to be a sacrifice for many. A sacrifice that would justly pay the atoning price for the sinful people. It is through Jesus that God came to judge in a way to judge and deem that the sacrifice was sufficient for the payment needed for sin, to justify those who believe. Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through me. He is the way, and the way is narrow, and it is exclusive. It is only through him. And as we come this Advent morning, and we praise God because he is just, Because of this exclusive way, he has dealt with the issue of sin, and he has given us a way to be restored to him. He has pronounced his judgment good, settled, full. 
has given us the good news of salvation through Jesus. So we want to take hold of those promises this morning to lay claim to them, to rejoice. Because all who call upon the name of the Lord, all who believe in their heart, will be saved. And this Christmas season, as we reflect on the memories, the familiar Bible stories, and maybe even the not-so-familiar Bible stories, we want to take comfort in the fact that God does not change, that he is just and that he has enacted his plan of salvation because of his love for us, that he is reliable, that he is God, and we praise him for that. Let's pray. Father, as we think about the issue of justice, Lord, many of us have our own ideas, our own versions of what that looks like. I'm thankful, Lord, that that you don't need my opinions, that you don't need my two cents, but that you are God and that you are just. And I pray that you would give me a heart that would be accepting and understanding. Lord, in things that seem unfair, in things and ways and circumstances that we cannot explain, Lord, we are called to lean on you, to continue to hold faith to your promises. Lord, so many times within the, the hurts of this world, we find ourselves clinging to things in this world. Lord, it's difficult, but I just pray that you would help us to cling to you in moments of crisis, in moments of trauma, in moments that we just don't understand. For you are stable, for you are unchanging. And even if we can't understand, even if we can't see your goodness or your judgment or your justice, Lord, do not give us a heart or a voice that indicts you. But Lord, give us your patience to patiently wait for your promises to come true because we know that they will. Help us to hold firm in our faith to what your word says. Not what to what we want, but to what your word says. And Lord, we thank you that you have an ear to listen to our cries, to our pleas. And through those times, Lord, I pray for understanding. I pray for an answer of, of truth. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to deepen our relationship with you through times of prayer, through times of being in your word, and that your spirit would just, uh, just lighten up our hearts and minds to gain in that wisdom and knowledge. Lord, I pray through this Advent season that we can understand uh, your justice a little bit more through what was done in your son, Jesus Christ. We love you and we praise you for your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.